For those of you who were not here last week, you're welcome to pick up the first week's handout. You will need it for this evening as well as handout number two. And uh, if you forgot yours, then you're welcome to take uh, another copy of handout number one. We are dealing with these preliminary background uh, materials, uh, what is labeled uh, technically uh, matters of introduction uh, to the context, authorship, and date of the epistle. And we have (coughs) considered the author uh, not to be the Apostle Paul uh, on the basis of a comparison between chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and Galatians 1, 9, 10, and 15 to 19. Uh, we've indicated that he is a male author based upon the use of the male participle in chapter 11, verse 32. And we suggested that the title to the Hebrews, which appears in the earliest papyri manuscript of Hebrews, P46, <clears throat> dating somewhere between 150 and 200 A.D., may in fact be an accurate reflection of the content of the letter, uh, Hebrews being used as a metaphor for pilgrims or sojourners, and in this case, the Hebrews of the end of the age, or the eschatological Hebrews, the eschatological pilgrim people of God, as compared with the protological Hebrews, the protological pilgrim people of God, the Exodus generation particularly, but the entire uh, pilgrim generation of Old Testament fathers and mothers who are listed in chapter 11. So there is a brief precis of what we covered in detail last week. Uh, The audio will be available uh, on the website nwts.edu if you would like to listen uh, to that presentation. So tonight we want to turn our attention, first of all, to the date, and if you'll turn in your handout number one to that page, uh, we will begin after a word of prayer to look at this issue. Our gracious Father, you have given us your word by the gift of your spirit, and in these last days to the voice of your own incarnate Son. We thank you for it, for every word of it and particularly for this epistle, which is beloved of your church and has been a great encouragement to her life and to her faith and to her hope down through the centuries. May it be so to us as we think about it, as we are stimulated by it, as we are even befuddled by it, for there are mysteries here as there are mysteries with you, things beyond which we cannot penetrate this side of glory, And we look forward to understanding even more as we sit at your very feet in heaven with the saints of that great cloud of witnesses. We ask your blessing upon our thinking tonight, for we pray in the name of our great high priest and intercessor, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, when was the epistle written? The date is relevant to the discussion of its context, and so we want to address that question, beginning with the easiest part of the question of dating the epistle, namely the terminus ad quem. Now, that Latin phrase is literally translated, the end to which or the end beyond which, The epistle could not have been written. 
So if you were going to say, how can we find out uh, the latest date beyond which Hebrews could not have been penned, uh, what would you suggest as a method or an approach to answering that question? Let's let's have you uh, exercise your minds a little bit on how would you go about attempting to get the latest date of the epistle? I can see it's a question you've thought a great deal about. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm brave. I would look in the book itself and see if there's anything in there that would date it historically. Nice, but uh, not even a single. No, um, we're not going to look inside the book for any terminus odd quim. And so obviously I've given something away there. We're going to be looking extra-biblically. We're going to be looking outside the book. So what would I be looking for, Robert? Probably uh, sermons uh, from the from the fathers, early fathers. Uh, their, their sermons probably quoted. Exactly. Good, Robert. I would want to look for a document that quotes Hebrews. And so I would want to make uh, an examination of perhaps the earliest extant Christian document that makes use of the epistle to the Hebrews. And if I could date that document, then you see I could date the terminus ad quo. I would know that Hebrews was already in existence and in circulation because this individual or this document actually quotes it or cites it. Robert, can you answer your own question? What is the earliest extant extra-biblical Christian document that quotes Hebrews. Or, to make it easier for you, what is, in fact, the earliest extant, extra-biblical Christian document? Uh, I would, I don't know, I'd be guessing, but I would say uh, probably uh, origin or... Somebody of that era? Well, you're about 200 years way down the road because Origen dies in 255, if you look at your uh, outline. And uh, our star new pupil is not here uh, because uh, he actually learned this in class this week. We could have put it to him. <clears throat> but <clears throat> we'll throw it out for grabs to anyone except Scott. And ben, do, you, do you want to take a shot at it, Felicia? No, I, don't. I was just saying he's hiding back there. Oh, he's hiding back. Oh, there he is. I couldn't see him. <clears throat> He's usually right in front of me in class, but he disappeared into the ante room. All right, come to the foot. You know, show your stuff here, Stephen. First Clement. First Clement. Okay, and can you give us a date for First Clement? 96 A.D. About 96 A.D. And where is Clement uh, operating? Rome. He is in Rome. First Clement, Clement of Rome. All right, so the earliest extant extra-biblical Christian document is Clement of Rome. It dates by general consensus to 96 A.D., and therefore there's our terminus ad quem, because in that uh, letter, and it is a letter that he writes to whom, Stephen? Corinthians. To the Corinthian church. So here is a pastor in Rome. He's often called the Bishop of Rome. I won't uh, get into that argument, but here is a pastor in Rome writing a letter to the church in Corinth, very much like the Apostle Paul did. And in this letter, he cites the epistle to the Hebrews no less than 17 times. 
17 times in 96 AD. All right, so with this date, we now know the end beyond which the epistle could not have been written. All right, now that leaves us with the terminus aquo, or the end from which, or the end after which the epistle could have been written. Now, this requires not extra-biblical evidence. This requires, K In the book itself. Intra-biblical, very good. In the book itself, the intra-biblical evidence, data from inside the letter. All right, now, first... Going about to address this question, is there any internal data which will help us find out, you know, what is the closest date uh, forward from which it might have been written? We have observed that the readers of this epistle, as well as the author, are second generation Christians. That is, they were converted to Christ by the message of salvation proclaimed by those who heard the Savior. And where did we find that in the epistle? Does anyone remember from last week? Chapter 3, verse 2. Turn it around, Ben. Chapter 2, verse 3. Very good. It was chapter 2, verse 3, where we noted the statement about how they had come to faith. They had heard it from those who had heard the Lord himself, and so... They had heard it from the apostles, so they are a second-generation Christian audience. Now, in the second place, the author tells them that since they first became Christians, enough time has elapsed that some of them ought to be teachers and no longer babes in the faith. And he makes this statement in chapter 5, verse 12. That is... He is indicating that there has been sufficient time since their conversion for them to have matured in doctrine and understanding. All right, how much time would that take? Let me suggest a generation. After all, this is a second-generation Christian audience. So let's suggest about 30 or 40 years And if we note that Christ's ministry ends in the period 30 to 33 A.D., then if we add 30 to 40 years to this, you see we're going to come up with a range of 60, 63 to 70, 73 A.D. for the date of this epistle or at least a range of, uh, of an era for the date of this epistle. Therefore, the lapse of time, which would have permitted development of leaders in this Christian community, as chapter 13, verse 7 indicates, supports the suggestion that we are somewhere within a generation removed from the death and resurrection of Christ. So somewhere in that period between 30 and 60 or 30 and 70 or 73 or 63. All right, now, if that gives us a ballpark, let's see if we can do anything to narrow it down uh, or to refine this uh, earliest uh, date point from which the epistle could have been written. Let's begin with a suggestion 
of a number of scholars that Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. Number of scholars saying that Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. This would fit the paradigm that we are suggesting, but let's think for a moment as to why those scholars suggest Hebrews antedates or precedes 70 A.D. Can any of you imagine why uh, some learned uh, scholars would uh, bring that up? Uh, uh, Somebody else who uh, hasn't had a chance? uh, Yes, go ahead, Felicia. The destruction of the temple. And... Looking at whether or not this had happened yet, whether or not there's evidence in the in the document. So, is there any evidence in the letter to the Hebrews that the temple has been destroyed and it was destroyed in what year? Felicia again. Seventy. By whom? Titus. Your name's not Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> and who is Titus? Since he's already uh, let the cat out of the bag. Um, yeah, one of the Romans. Yes, he is a Roman general, and he has sent to uh, to put down a Jewish revolt that erupted in 66 A.D. and had been uh, fueled for about four years when Titus finally came to crush it, and in crushing it, obliterated or smashed the temple. All right, so there's no mention of this cataclysmic event, and indeed, it was a, a significant event in uh, first century Jewish history. And therefore, these uh, scholars say, well, then since there's no mention of the temple, then it had to have been written before 70 AD or he would have noted it. He would have noted it. It was that significant an event. All right. Now, I am skeptical of that conclusion, and I've already alluded to that. I'm skeptical because the fact that the temple is not mentioned in this letter at all, while the tabernacle is discussed repeatedly, may in fact not be due to the fact that the temple is standing or not standing, but it may be due to the fact that the writer is not interested in the temple. That is, theological overview or his theological purpose is to suggest that the temple is irrelevant to what he is attempting to communicate. So he does not mention it, not because it's been destroyed. Rather, he doesn't mention the temple because it does not fit his sojourn or pilgrim motif, which is compatible with the tabernacle image, which is a sojourn or pilgrim motif for the children of Israel in the wilderness period. Robert? Seems to me R.C. Sproul argued that uh, the book of Revelation was written prior to 70 A.D. using the same logic. Yes, uh, uh, R.C., when he took that um, uh, kind of mildly preterist position, was endorsing that. Um, I don't want to get into that discussion, uh, let alone into the issue of preterism, uh, which I regard as an aberration and uh, not really uh, worthy of serious consideration, uh, R.C. Sproul notwithstanding. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, with this uh, language and metaphor, which the author is using, the absence of the mention of the temple is an indication that he's got an other, a different agenda, in my opinion. All right. Now, in the third place, what do we learn 
from chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Now, I want you to have your Bibles open, all of you, and be ready to turn when I call on you. I'd like somebody to read chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And if I can begin with Mary Lou, if you are there, if you can read those uh, verses for us so that we have them in front of us and uh, read uh, loudly so everybody can hear and so perhaps even the microphone can hear. Uh, It's 32, chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. Okay. Uh, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Thanks very much, Mary Lou. Now, notice what we read there. This community has endured suffering or persecution. Some of your versions may say tribulation. They have also endured imprisonment of some of their members. Loss of property is enumerated here, whether it has been seized by local governments or confiscated in some other way. Nonetheless, they have endured loss of earthly goods. But let us ask the question, what about the ultimate loss? Have they lost their lives? Have they suffered death? And if we'll turn to chapter 12, verse 4, I'll ask Ben to read that for us. Chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So, the persecutions and the tribulations of chapter 10 have not resulted in the loss of life. In other words, they have not been uh, taken uh, to the uh, martyr, the martyrium, the martyrium. They have not gone, uh, undergone martyrdom, at least not as yet. Which means, if we pause for a moment, we know that this epistle was not written to the church in Jerusalem, do we not? We can eliminate Jerusalem from the possible destinations of this letter. And why do we know that this epistle was not written to the church at Jerusalem? Pete? Because of the persecution, many of them lost their lives. Namely, name two. (laughs) Two very famous persons in the Jerusalem church that lost their life. James. Is your name Pete? Yeah, he took my name. <laughs> I'm picking on Pete for a particular reason here, but <laughs> go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> go ahead, Stephen. What did you say? I said James. And what James is this? <clears throat> uh, Christ's brother. Is it Christ's brother, Pete? Yep. Is it Bill? No. No, it is not. It is James, the brother of John. And what happens to him, Pete? He gets uh, killed. By whom? Uh, Bill? Is it Herod? Herod Agrippa, yes. Chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. All right, now who's the other famous name in the book of Acts 
who suffers unto blood. Anyone? Stephen. Stephen. Yes, our, our namesake back there. The uh, deacon in chapter 7 is also martyred. So, <clears throat> this cannot have been written to the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem church has already suffered uh, <clears throat> the loss of life. They have suffered unto the shedding of blood, and consequently, uh, we look elsewhere for the destination of this letter. Now, I'm going to talk about that in more detail later on, but right now I want to kind of... <clears throat> Uh, uh, let the cat out of the bag for a minute. If you turn to verse 24 of chapter 13, you will notice this phrase, those from Italy greet you. Now, this suggests that this letter has been written to the church in Rome because we have a group of expatriate Italians or Romans Sending greetings back to a Christian community in Italy, probably in Rome. <clears throat> so, uh, kind of uh, summarizing the destination for the moment as we're thinking about this issue, that verse is a giveaway, in my opinion, as to where this epistle was being directed. So, the epistle to the Romans is being written to Christians in Rome. They are suffering persecution. Some have been imprisoned, but martyrdom has not yet occurred. So, when did the first significant bloody persecution of Christians in Rome occur? And before Stephen blots out, blurts out, blurts out the answer. Tracy? Under Nero. Under Nero. Very good. And uh, what's the date of that persecution? And what is the event that produces it or spawns it? The burning of... Very good. The burning of the city of Rome. Very good. And uh, what is the year for that horrific conflagration? We'll test Benji on that one. 66. Stephen, is that right? 64. 64. You'll learn that Benji struggles with dates as much as you don't, but that's all right. <laughs> 64 A.D. is the great fire of Rome. And who was the emperor? Uh, uh, Tracy, repeat that again. Nero. Nero. And uh, why did the city burn? Because he went crazy. Because he went crazy. That's not his story. <laughs> what was his story? Is your name Tracy? He blamed it on the Christians. And what did he do with the Christians? He crucified them along the Roman roads. He tarred their bodies with pitch and he set them on fire so that they would be lamps in the night while they were still alive. He burned them alive in the first major bloody persecution. Thousands of Christians probably died in that persecution. So we can date this first shedding of blood or suffering under the shedding of blood in Rome to 64 A.D., which means that the letter to the Hebrews had to have been written before 64 A.D. Well, let's go back to chapter 10 and to verse 32, which Mary Lou read earlier. And let's take a look at that phrase. 
Remember the former days. Remember the former days. All right, what could that mean? What what are the former days? If they haven't suffered unto blood, in other words, it's not 64 yet. It's not the Neronian persecution yet. What are the former days that he's referring to here when they did suffer? Tracy? When they were kicked out of Rome, all the Jews kicked out of Rome. Who was kicked out of Rome? Jews. And who did it? Caesar. Which Caesar? What's his name? Augustus. Pardon? Augustus. No, Augustus is long dead. Which Caesar is this, Pete? Claudius. It is Claudius. All right, now the reference is to what text? Let's keep your finger in Hebrews 10. Pete, what's the reference to? Do you know? Uh, Can you pull that up? Let's see. Uh, 17 or 18, around in there. Yeah, close. It's 18.2. Very good. Let's take a look at Acts 18.2. And if Pete uh, finds it, let's have Pete read it for us. We'll have the text in front of us. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. All right, so the expulsion of the Jews by Claudius, which is recorded in Acts 18.2, is a concrete and unimpeachable date in first century history, both Roman and extra-Roman. What is the date of this event? It is 49 A.D. 49 A.D. Now, Claudius is the emperor before Nero. He is emperor of Rome after Caligula from 41 to 54 A.D., and Nero succeeds him. In fact, he is his adopted son, and Nero is emperor from 54 to 68 when he commits suicide. Claudius had married Nero's mother and adopted Nero as his successor. It turned out very badly for Claudius because... Agrippina, the uh, woman he married, uh, Nero's mother, uh, was interested in marrying Claudius for no other reason than to gain accession to the throne for her son, and she poisoned Claudius with a delectable mushroom dish uh, and uh, put him out of his misery uh, and uh, took over the throne only to have her son, Nero, murder her because he knew that if she would have gotten rid of the other emperor, she wouldn't have hesitated to get rid of him either. What goes around comes around. <clears throat> All right. Now, uh, that little side note about the uh, inner workings of the <laughs> Roman Empire, we want to look at Claudius's act recorded by Luke in Acts 18.2, namely the expulsion of the Jews in 49 A.D., which also snares Priscilla and Aquila, and ask why. You will notice that you have a quotation from Cassius Dio's Roman history, which also applies to Claudius, in which he treats the Jews with some severity, but does not drive them out of the country. 
So obviously that quote is referring not to 49 AD. It is referring to something that Claudius did in order to restrain the Jews. Notice the last line, they were not to hold meetings. What Claudius did was he shut down the synagogues. Now, he did this when he came to the throne in 41. <clears throat> the date of this event is 41 A.D. So Claudius's involvement with the Jews goes back to the beginning of his reign. <clears throat> 49 A.D. is then no surprise insofar as it is part of Claudius's anti-Semitism. Now, it's more or less severe, less severe here in 41, more severe in 49. But nonetheless, Claudius, like many xenophobes, was anti-Semitic. So we come back to the question of Acts 18.2, why? Why does Claudius expel the Jews in 49 AD when he had only restricted them to private meetings in their homes and shut their synagogues eight years before? What has gotten into his craw or what's under his skin? There are two things. First of all, there is Seneca. Now, you know the name Seneca as the great Roman orator. Seneca had been banished by Caligula. He was much too critical of that bastard empire, emperor, that man who delighted in tyrannizing and torturing people and playing the clown in the gladiator arena. <clears throat> Caligula banished Seneca because he was a thorn in his conscience. But Claudius recalls him. <clears throat> Claudius recalls Seneca because he is the greatest rhetorical educator of the day, and Claudius wants Nero to be well-tutored and educated. So Seneca <clears throat> is recalled from exile to be the teacher of Nero, <clears throat> and Seneca is as viciously anti-Semitic as Claudius is, only he's more vitriolic and public about it. At least the emperor has the chutzpah to keep it a little bit quiet, but Seneca is not. And in order to placate Seneca, Claudius allows the Jews to be expelled. But that's not the sole reason. That's one of the reasons he's playing the Seneca game. Second reason is the pomerium. Now, the Latin word pomerium literally means to place a limit on, to place a limit on. Now, what's going on? In 49 AD, having recalled Seneca, Claudius also determined to uh, launch a campaign to restore the traditional Roman pagan religions. In other words, he wanted to rehabilitate the shrines of the gods. And then in the Pomerium, he set limits on the other non-Roman religious groups, including the Jews. So in enforcing the Pomerium, he enforced the exile of the Jews. Now, it's not likely that every Jew left Rome. <clears throat> Many of them did. But there were probably more than 50,000 of them there at this time. So he didn't banish them all, and some of them probably went underground. But we go back to chapter 18, verse 2 of Acts, and we notice that Priscilla and Aquila are caught in the dragnet. Why? 
Are they Jews? Kristen, are they Jews? I saw your I saw your head shake. Oh, you were yawning. I'm, I misinterpreted. Does anyone have a, 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 a nod that is not a yawn? I don't think so. Carol? I don't oh, you don't think so. What, what are they? Christians. They are Christians, yes. All right, it is likely that they are Christians even at this time. How is it then that they get snared in the dragnet? All right, I direct your attention to the other quotation. It's one of the most important quotations in the first century Roman annals from Suetonius's De Vita Caesarum, concerning the lives of the Caesars. And in this case, Divus Claudius the Divine Claudius. Notice the statement. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Crestus. Who is Crestus? It is Christ. It is the Roman misinterpretation of the name Christ or Suetonius' misinterpretation. What is he describing here? He is describing the turmoil within the Jewish community with those from within the Jewish community have been converted to Crestus or Christ and are agitating the synagogues, or agitating the Jewish ethnic community in Rome. And because of that turmoil and disturbance, then Claudius sees the Jews as a threat to civil stability. In other words, there is enough conflict within the Jewish community between Christians and Jews that Claudius takes the initiative to expel them because Crestus is a troublemaker, or the name Crestus is creating trouble and stirring up trouble in the Jewish community. Now, this is an interesting indirect testimony to the fact that Christianity was, by the Romans, regarded as a Jewish sect, and with varying degrees of acceptance or suspicion. In other words, if it was a Jewish sect, then it could hide under the umbrella of Jewish acceptance for the most part, although we've noticed the exception in 41 A.D. and 49 A.D. But on the other hand, it could hide behind the Jewish synagogue without Rome noticing too closely because it was simply lumped in with the same mass of Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish devotees. But here in 49, Claudius draws a line in the sand. And it's because this agitation has become such, such a disturbance in the body politic that he deals with it by expelling them. And so consequently, Priscilla and Aquila are expelled because they are Christians who by their witness and testimony are part of the agitation in the Jewish community in Rome. And so they are sent packing with many others. All right, let's summarize our conclusion about the date to this point. The language of chapter 12, verse 4 is pre-Neronian, that is, before Nero's persecution. So chapter 12, verse 4, is before 64 A.D. The language of chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, particularly verse 32, is the Claudian expulsion, former days, 
49 AD, Acts 18.2. This epistle is therefore written somewhere between 49 and 64 AD, which falls into our original suggestion of within the second generation of Christians in the first century. It could not have been written after 64 AD, nor could it have been written after 68 AD when Nero dies, because that would make chapter 10, verse 32, refer the former days to Nero's persecution in chapter 12, verse 4, and would therefore make chapter 10, verse 32, anachronistic. It would be a contradiction. They did suffer unto blood in 64 A.D. under Nero. Thus, any date after 64 A.D. would make chapter 12, verse 4 contradictory and therefore contrary to the inspiration of the Word of God. All right, well, we probably can do no better than what we've mapped out. As you notice, your outline in the handout. Before 96 A.D., and we'll fill in parenthesis, Clement of Rome. Before 64 A.D., and we'll fill in parenthesis, Tracy. Anyone? Nero. Nero, correct. And probably after 49 A.D., and we'll fill in... Anyone? Claudius. Claudius. Very good. All right, there are the parameters for the dating of the epistle. Do you have any questions or comments you'd like to raise? Yes, Kristen? How could people think that Paul writes it because isn't Paul dead? Um, before 64, doesn't he die? No, Paul, if you go on the tradition, Paul is executed somewhere between 64 and 68. Somewhere, at least the traditional date is somewhere in this period. After the Neronian persecution breaks out, Paul and Peter both are snagged in it. Now, the difficulty with that is, of course, what's the difficulty with that? Professor Sanborn, what's the difficulty with that? Um, I was thinking of something else. What, do you, what was your question? <laughs> you got me thinking on another train. About, about All right, don't, don't get off that train. You know? uh, here's, here's the comment that t- tradition says that Peter and Paul were executed as a result of the outbreak of the Neronian persecution sometime before the persecution breaks out in 64 and Nero himself dies. So somewhere between 64 and 68 A.D., Paul is executed in Rome. What's the problem with that? Um, I don't know. That's, that's a very standard answer, so I haven't <laughs> thought enough about it. All right, uh, let's go to Benji next. What's the problem with that? Well, there's a possibility of the second imprisonment of Paul and then the later trip to Spain. Yes, and Benji's speaking out of his work that he's been doing on the pastoral epistles. All right, so we we have this issue of First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, and how is it if Paul is dead in this period, how is it that he writes these letters to Timothy and Titus, which seem to post-date any of the prison epistles? All right. The solution is 
Paul was released after that first imprisonment and conducted another missionary journey, which may have taken him all the way to Spain. But he was rearrested and executed later than the Neronian era. And that would allow for the uh, dating and the writing of the pastoral epistles. Or, like a good liberal, you just cut the Gordian knot and do what? Bill? Art? Paul didn't write those epistles. Paul didn't write the epistles. That's how you solve the dilemma. In other words, if you're a good liberal, you say, no, he lost his head here, and therefore the pastorals don't belong to him. Somebody stole his name and pretended to write those letters pseudonymously, that is, pulling Paul's name out of a hat and camping under its reputation. Now, you see, that's that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for another reason, number of reasons, but it's not acceptable because the epistles all begin, Paul too, Paul too, Paul too. Now, the guy's a liar if he's claiming Paul's name for writing something Paul didn't write, and you're saying that's inspired by God or that's authoritative scripture. Oh, no, it's not because we can get women ordained because that's really not. So you see what happens with the contextualization argument, don't you? You see the, the dominoes falling once you start down that trail. All right. This is a uh, gnarly issue, okay? Uh, the so-called second imprisonment of the apostle and how we fit the pastorals into any dating chronology of the apostle's life. It is a challenge. F.F. Bruce, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century and a great Pauline scholar in his own right, agonized over this. And the issue still continues to dog the New Testament community, both liberal and conservative alike. They struggle with this issue of the Pauline chronology. So we can't settle it dogmatically. But for, uh, for my money, I can't justify the Pauline authorship of the pastorals without Paul getting out of jail in Rome and taking another journey. Scott? The, the train or a different train? No, well, no, that's it's the one that you're talking about here. I mean, I, I understand the second, you know, imprisonment, but uh, is there a really strong reason why the second imprisonment could not have taken place under Nero? That's... I don't think there's enough time for it, you know, quite honestly. They'll plunk this date in between. Generally, the Roman Catholics will say 66 AD. So... Uh, it's not impossible that he could have been released in 64 and been rearrested and executed before 68. It's not impossible. But uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, I, I don't think there's enough time for him to get roaming around the Mediterranean basin again, write three letters, uh, you know, leave uh, Titus in Crete and so on and so forth, uh, put Timothy in Ephesus as he does and still get back to Rome to be killed. But, uh, you know... But, uh, Maybe ships were sailing faster in those days than I'm aware of. <clears throat> there another question? Uh, 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 oh, uh, you were on another train. I, I wanted... Oh, the, the train was just two things I was thinking about. Obviously, Paul could have read Hebrews and then trying to connect that with the writing of he, you know, Romans, but that's just totally a side trick. Yeah, you train wrecks. Okay, Stephen? 
Uh, how late is the tradition uh, for Paul dying in 64 to 68? It goes back to Lactantius, which is uh, 3rd century, or getting into the 4th century. Uh, the Catholics will say it goes all the way back to Anacletus, all right, I don't think they can demonstrate that with any credibility, but you may remember they think they dug up Peter's uh, 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 crypt uh, this past spring or summer, and they're uh, sending that to uh, all kinds of tests, etc. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, the, the beat goes on. Any uh, any other questions? Yes. The second question I had was uh, if the, the uh, temple wasn't standing, then in Hebrews... Uh, 10 verse 11 at least in the English it reads every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins at least in the English that's present as though every priest is doing that in the temple right now possible possible argument but I take it as an historic present where he's talking about the wilderness paradigm, for in this 10th chapter he's going all through the tabernacle imagery and what's going on there. So it's uh, so he's using the argument from his context. So the priest is every day standing in the tabernacle. That he, so that's, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the temple. He's not talking about what's going on in Jerusalem. He's talking about what's going on in the wilderness situation and the tabernacle of, of meeting. Okay? I'm not understanding it. According to 1324, it says those from Italy sent you their greetings. And so from that, you think it was sent to Rome? Yes. Uh, Stay with me. Uh, I'll I'll try to make it crystal clear in the second hour when we take a look at uh, the location that namely where is it being written and to whom is it being written. And I'll try to make that case stronger. Uh, I I said that I was kind of letting the cat out of the bag there, but uh, uh, thanks for reminding me that I have to shore up my argument. Anything else? All right, now uh, we're going on to handout uh, number two, which I trust you picked up at the back of the room. And we want to talk now about the audience or the readers of this epistle. Now, this question is an attempt to extract a profile of the Christian community to which our anonymous author pens his letter. Once again, we ransack the internal data of the epistle. This is an intra-biblical, actually intra-Hebrews effort, because we are absent any external indicators of the makeup of this group. That is, we do not have a document that says we are the community of the Hebrews to which this anonymous writer was directing this document. So we're going to go inside the letter in order to attempt to get a profile. Now, I think we may say with confidence that this is an urban congregation. It is an urban congregation. This is not a rural congregation out in the hills or valleys, either of Italy or Asia Minor or 
Palestine uh, or Egypt. This is an urban congregation because you will notice they are proximate to prisons. Chapter 10, verse 34, which we've read earlier. Art, if you will turn to chapter 13, verse 3, I'd like you to read that. Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. This is another passage which indicates that they were proximate to prisons, and there's one more passage in chapter 13, verse 23, in which Timothy is released, and last week we indicated he's released from prison. I'm not suggesting that Timothy's prison is in the same location as the author uh, and his community. Nonetheless, this imprisonment motif is in the background of this letter, and it strongly argues in chapter 10 and chapter 13 for a location in a city. Now, in support of that conclusion, namely that this is a suburban, this is an urban or metropolitan or city-based congregation, let's reflect for a moment on one of the common motifs in this letter. This epistle gives a mirror reflection of persons residing in a city or looking for a city. Chapter 11 verses 10 and 16, chapter 12, verse 22, and the most famous passage, chapter 13, verse 14, where the writer says, we have here no continuing city. And so the motif of a city feeds this suggestion that this is an urban or city congregation somewhere in the Roman Empire, somewhere in the Roman world. All right, now what more can we say about this uh, congregation in a city? It has experienced some type of persecution. We've seen that in chapter 10, verse 33, including imprisonment, which is specifically listed in 1034, 13.3, which we just had Art read, and 13.23, to which I alluded. This congregation has also suffered confiscation of their property. Chapter 10, verse 34. These tribulations have discouraged them. Or as one prescient writer has pointed out, they have been persecuted from without and have become disillusioned from within. That's a very well-balanced treatment of what is happening inside this congregation. Persecuted from without and they have become disillusioned from within. How so? Notice what the writer says. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, you have become dull of hearing. In chapter 6, verse 12, they have become sluggish or lethargic. Some have stopped coming to worship in chapter 10, verse 25. They're not even assembling with the body of believers anymore. And others seem to have been attracted to strange teachings in chapter 13, verse 9. Now, all of these symptoms are characteristics of second-generation audiences. Lethargy, diminished enthusiasm, 
at least enthusiasm which has lessened in this community from those who first heard the gospel. A kind of weariness which has caused some of them to stop moving forward, advancing in their Christian understanding in life, content to camp out where they are spiritually and put it on cruise control. They are not growing anymore. They are not penetrating into the Word of God. They're not even coming to worship to be stimulated anymore. They've decided they've had enough religion and they can simply cruise into heaven on what they've got. How many congregations can that be said of? Mm, Even today. Tragically, sadly, they've stopped growing. They've stopped learning. They've stopped digging. They've stopped devouring. They've stopped learning. They're just simply camping out in their pews. All right. That means that this group and this problem with the second generation Malays, this group is looking backwards. They are looking to the past. They are resting on their past laurels. What they were taught in catechism, and that's enough for them. How often that has risen its ugly head in the Dutch community. Oh, we are catechized, and we're cruising because, well, we're in. We're in covenant. We've got the catechism. We can cite question and answer. Don't ask us to explain what the answer means in our own words, but we can recite it. Rote memorization, which leads to spiritual cruising. They're looking back to the past. They're leaning on what would Paul, what Paul would call the beggarly elements of their previous religious sojourn. All right. Does this mean then that the Jewish or Old Testament imagery in Hebrews identifies the audience, this is our question, who is this audience, who are the readers, does the use of the Jewish or Old Testament imagery in Hebrews identify this audience as a Jewish Christian audience? Does it? Patterns of mosaic wilderness sojourn, the tabernacle, the tabernacle ritual, the tabernacle furniture, the Old Testament heroes and heroines of the faith, The profuse citation of Old Testament passages. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. All of this suggests a Christian audience with Jewish Old Testament roots. In fact, it seems so obvious that it's a no-brainer. Well, of course these are Jewish Christians. Of course. No doubt about it. That's the reason he's using all this Jewish liturgy and imagery. Well, let's assume for a moment, just for the sake of discussion, that this is, in fact, a Jewish Christian audience. And that the exhortations and the imagery which our author uses are intended to alert that audience to the dangers of returning to Judaism. That is, that their lethargy for Christian truth is is due to the attraction 
of strange teachings, 13.9, strange teachings which include Jewish nostalgia, Jewish ritualism, even Jewish notions about the role of angels as mediators between God and man. Now, on this interpretation, if it is sound, our author's goal would be apologetic. That is, he's defending the superiority of Christianity and trying to wean them from going back to the beggarly elements of Judaism. If his theme and his goal is apologetic, it is not eschatological. That is, the Old Testament imagery is presented as an apology against the beggarly elements of the former Jewish era in contrast to the liberty of the sons and daughters of God in the eschatological era, the era of the last days, eschatu ameron, the eschatological days, verse 2 of the first chapter. Now, besides making our author on this view more like the Apostle Paul than he truly is, this point of view would topologize the epistle by de-eschatologizing it. Topologize it by de-eschatologizing it. What do I mean by that? If the problem is a return to Judaism, we have an epistle which measures in the linear and not in the vertical, in the temporal and not in the eternal, in the historical merely and not in the eschatological. So that we may say that looking back, as Judaism tends to do, instead of looking up, as Judaism tends not to do, would reduce Hebrews to typological apologetics, not eschatological possession. All right. I think we've got a serious issue here of the character of the eschatological temper of the New Testament and particularly how it stands as opposed to Judaism, which I will detail next week when we begin to look at chapter 1, the eschatology of Judaism in contrast to the eschatology of Christianity. So that if we are going to say that this is directed to a Jewish Christian audience, we are going to flatten this letter down to a linear Topology of reclaiming Jews for Christ, which is commendable in its own right, but I don't think that's what the author is doing. So I leave you to chew on that. We come back and we'll advance this discussion a little further as we comment on other options for the audience of this letter. Five minutes. Efficiently refreshed with your coffee or tea or water or whatever and are now ready to resume this discussion of the audience.
as a corollary to this question of whether it is a return to Judaism, which is at the fore, let us suggest a somewhat bizarre explanation of a possible return to Judaism motif. Is the return to Judaism, if this is a Jewish Christian audience, a search for safety? A search for a refuge? In the face of persecution, a return to Judaism because it's safe. Consider the possibility that the persecution which this audience is experiencing has caused some to retreat or flee back to Judaism as a refuge, as a safe haven. How would that work? They are escaping persecution by rejoining the synagogue because Judaism in the first century Roman Empire is a religio licita, a licit or legal religion, a religion recognized by the state as acceptable and approved. Now, granted, we've noticed Claudius's harassment of it, but nonetheless, as long as it's peaceable and civil, it's accepted by Rome and recognized as a traditional sect, tolerated within Rome. All right, well, if it is tolerated by Rome, persecution comes, is it a safe haven? Hmm. If Christianity was persecuted, it was because it was not recognized as a religio licita. No, Christianity was contemptuously, scornfully persecuted as a religio illicita, an illicit religion. And it came to its head in 64 AD with Nero. Hence, abandoning Christianity for Judaism was joining a recognized and tolerated religious body, not being subject to imprisonment and poverty because of confiscation of your property, and being a member of an accepted group, not a despised and rejected religious minority. Is it possible? That is an intriguing, if not bizarre, suggestion, and yet it must be placed on the table. Or is this a Jewish audience? Are these Jewish Christians? And let's begin in answering that question by looking at chapter 6, verse 2. Chapter 6, verse 2. And Sarai, if you have it, would you please read for us Hebrews 6, verse 2. Instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Being instructed in washings or baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, 
Would a Jewish audience require instruction in these things? Or would washings, and here we're talking about ritual cleansing, laying on of hands in sacrificial offerings, laying your hand on the head of the sacrificial beast, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment be familiar to Jews from their knowledge of the Old Testament and of the Old Testament ritual. All right, considering 6.2, let's turn over to chapter 7, verse 2. And Loretta, would you read chapter 7, verse 2 for us? And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteous, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Now think about that. Melchizedek's name is translated. Would a Jewish audience not know that Melchizedek means king in righteousness and king of Salem means king of peace? You wouldn't have to translate those terms. Melchizedek for a Jewish audience. Every little bar mitzvah knows how to read those words. He'd been trained to read that much Hebrew. So once again, we have some internal indications that, in fact, this probably was not a Jewish audience. I skipped over you, Andy. You had your hand waving back there when we were looking at 6.2. Go ahead. I, I was just maybe I was missing your point about 6.2 because it seemed like the author was saying the elementary teachings so that these would be things that they would already have known. They had to be taught with elementary teachings. Yeah, notice the instruction word, okay? You're not going to have to be taught about these things if you're already a converted Jew. Because you already know about them. They're in your past. You're in your past religious practice, your past religious lore. It would be a Gentile that would have to be instructed in this. Here, I'm not taking baptism literally. I'm taking it as kind of ritual washings. We're talking about baptism as you're washing off the pieces of a sacrificial meat before you burn it on the altar. Laying on of hands. Laying on of hands. You're laying your hands on the ritual offering. See, you bring your offering to the tabernacle, to the priest. You lay your hands on the head of the beast. You confess your sins over it. Okay, we're not talking about ordination laying on of hands here. This is ritualistic liturgy. This is liturgical language. All right, now, uh, the last piece of evidence here is chapter 9. We're not going to read it all, but if you look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, you have an elaborate description of the structure and the furnishings of the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, would a Jewish audience need this propodeutic? But a Gentile audience would. A Gentile audience would need a tutorial a tutorial in what the tabernacle building meant, what the furniture in the tabernacle meant. They would need a tutorial to translate Melchizedek from Hebrew into Greek. They would also need instruction in the list of those things that are prescribed in chapter 6, verse 2. What do these things mean? Washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead. 
Okay, a Gentile audience, particularly a Hellenistic Gentile audience, would sneer at the notion of the resurrection of the dead. Notice Acts 17, Paul on Mars Hill. It would appear more likely, I'm not dogmatic here, okay? It would appear more likely that we have a Gentile readership and the phrase repentance from dead works, which you will notice in chapter 6, verse 1, would indicate a conversion from dead paganism to faith toward God, which is exactly what the writer says in that verse. In addition, we may note the use of the word enlightened, which we have also noticed in chapter 6, verse 4, and in chapter 10, verse 32, enlightened or being illumined in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, would indicate a conversion from an unenlightened paganism to the light of the Christian gospel. The fact that the Greek of this letter is so superb may support this suggestion. Well-educated Hellenistic Gentiles who would easily understand the writer's literary style. Now, I'm not denying that some of my Arguments there are arguments from silence. Nonetheless, in trying to examine the case for the background of this audience, I lean towards a Gentile or Hellenistic Christian audience, not a Jewish Christian audience. A former pagan Hellenistic Gentile audience now converted to Christ, but enduring duress in an urban environment. The writer uses the imagery of the Old Testament sojourn to close the gap between their pagan past and the revelation of God to believers in the former times. They need to be brought up to speed with the understanding of the details or the basic narrative of that revelation in the former times. So by explicitly using wilderness imagery, Sabbath imagery, tabernacle imagery, priesthood imagery, covenant imagery. Our author is instructing his Gentile audience in their redemptive historical identity. These heirs of the Magnalia Dei in God the Son, the magnificent acts of God in God the Son, are joint heirs with those who experienced the Magnalia Dei, the mighty acts of God in the former era also through God the Son, pre-incarnate. Hence, the whole revelation of God, Old Testament and New Testament, belongs to the whole people of God, Jew and Gentile alike. The Jewish era, that former era, the Gentile era, these last days. As the eschatological days unfold, which is his term, for the days in which he and this community are living, verse 2, chapter 1. I cannot underscore enough that phrase in that verse. In these eschatological days. Now, I have taken that phrase right out of the second verse of the letter, as I've indicated. The eschatological days invisible to the world are antithetically positioned 
to the visible days and visible hours that the world finds only too real. Get real. See? Get real. Grab for all the gusto you can get. Get real. In truth, the invisible world is more real than the visible. For that invisible world is the world of God himself. His holy angels, the spirits of just men and women made perfect. This invisible eschatological world is real to those of faith. Faith believes in God. Faith believes in his world. Faith believes in his eschatological arena. Faith sees the invisible as the most real, the most tangible of all, because faith lays hold of God's reality. Christ's reality, heaven's reality, eternity's reality. All else will perish, Hebrews 1, verse 11. All else will perish, chapter 1, verse 11. All that is presently visible will perish will be dissolved, will vanish when all that is invisible, all that is imperishable, all that is indissoluble will be revealed in the consummation of transcendent glory. That will abide, this will not. The writer tells you it will perish. So I am suggesting that the eschatological character of Christianity is one of the problems this community of readers has. That is, precisely the invisible nature of the person and work of Christ. They are second generation Christians. They never saw him. The invisible character of his person and work. The priority of faith as opposed to sight. The heavenly or otherworldly character of the Christian gospel. All that unseeable religious and spiritual reality has left our members, the members of our author's audience, longing for their past. The past that they left in order to join themselves to the Christian community, that tangible, hands-on past, I can touch it. That cow, that priest, that menorah, that altar, I can touch it. This Jesus I can't touch. I can't get my hands on him. Whether it was Judaism or paganism, they left. 
Whether it's Judaism or paganism they left behind, they are now remembering the very tangible and visible religious rituals they once practiced. Sacrifices they could place their hands on, priests, priestesses that they could see and touch, religious rites that they could act out, perform, experience. They could experience them repetitively in a tangible way every day. But Christ's sacrifice, not visible. His entrance into heaven shifts their focus away from the earth, the ritual sacred space in this world, away from the impressive and elaborate Jewish or pagan ritual of worship. The sacrifice of Christ was not impressive. In fact, it was criminal and a shame, a scandal, a scandal. Hence, the lethargy of our author's audience is directed to the regress of his readers and hearers, their regress to the visibility and worldliness of their former religious practice. Not a pilgrim's progress, but a fellow traveler's regress. If they were Jews a regress to the visibility of the synagogue and the rabbinical order. If they were pagans, to the visibility of the great pantheons of Greco-Romanism. The desire for externalism, visibilism, outwardism, this worldism in religion, pomp and circumstance, gimme ritual, you see, That longing is what drives these second-generation Christians into inactivity, lethargy, and actually departure. That desire is antithetical to the eschatological character of the risen Christ and the heavenly orientation of pilgrims in every era of the history of redemption. We have here no continuing city. None. Do not put your confidence in things where moth and rust corrupt. You are not going to take it with you. The eschatological is the truly real and faith lays hold of the truly real. It lays hold of its visibility. It lays hold of its reality. Faith lays hold of its eternity, that eschatological arena, which is the reason that faith in its eschatological relation is so important in this epistle. Faith in chapter 11, verse 1 Faith which puts the believer in touch with heaven. Faith which puts the believer in touch with the invisible. Faith which puts the believer in touch, in possession of the eschatological reality of God himself and his truly real world. Ah. This is as difficult for us as it was for some of the members of the audience to whom our anonymous author writes, we want 
the tangible. We want the visual. We want the earthly, while faith lays hold of the opposite. We want our religion to be like our dinner table. We want our religion to be like National Football League bowl games. We want our religion to be like great edifices and cathedrals with all kinds of tangible statuary hanging around, which we can go up and grab. We want our religion rock and roll because that's real, baby, that's real. But let us remind ourselves by faith that the invisible is where Jesus is now. Yes, he is. That's where he is now. And that where Jesus is now is where God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit were before anything tangible or visible ever was. They were there. From all eternity, they were there. Before any matter of this world ever existed. That eternal has always been real. The temporal only began to be real when God made it. Creation will cease, become invisible by perishing, but the uncreation will never cease. The uncreation will never cease. It is permanent and abiding and as imperishable as God himself is eternal. But the measure of your faith in the reality of the God that you hold on to, whom you cannot see or grasp with your fingers, but is so real that he lifts your soul into heaven itself. Ah, yes, yes. That's what this writer is talking to you about. In chapter 11. And so, eschatology is prior to creation. Eschatology is more real than cosmology. The invisible, more real and enduring than the visible. So faith receives, so faith believes. And so faith achieves. That is the faith of a Christian pilgrim. Because it was the very same faith of the Hebrew pilgrims. It's the same faith always. Any questions about the audience?
Andy. Not so much a question as a, as a comment, but um, I, I think the arguments you brought up are good, but the other one I think that Hebrews speaks about a parallel is the way that he exhorts his audience um, when he's driving them points. It's not, um, you know, here's, here's, you have something better, therefore, why do you want to go back to this? It's, here's what's so much better, so don't fall away. Don't stop coming to church. Don't, you know, fall back into sin. Very good. And so the exhortations there of, of the motif that you've heard me driving towards is not um, going back to this Hebrew religion, but it's moving forward and don't be coming in, don't be in the added rebellion of Moses and so on and so forth. So I think um, I think what you're bringing on is driven home and by that. Excellent observation. The exhortations are vertical. They are not horizontal. In other words, this is not a linear dimension of hortatory uh, encouragement to them. It's, you know, take possession of that city. Come up into that very same city that Abraham looked for, whose builder and maker is God. You got a question, Art? Or, no. I do. Yes, your hand went up. Go ahead. I do. Yeah. You made the point that the audience is a Gentile audience because of all the instructions that he gives about the Jewish traditions that Jews wouldn't need. But could it be a mixed audience of Gentiles and Jews? Just like in any church, people have all different kinds of backgrounds. That's hypothesis. I can't deny that it may be a mixed Jewish-Gentile audience. But I think the inclination of the imagery here is more towards the propedeutic that a Gentile audience would need. And therefore, I'm leaning that direction more than the other. As I said, I'm not dogmatic about this, so you're certainly, uh, it's certainly worthwhile considering what you've said. But I'm not going to consider it anymore because I'm going to go on. I want to try to finish these introductory matters. I'm sorry, uh, but I'm not going to take any more questions till after 9 o'clock. All right, location. We're going to address more specifically Kay's question earlier, but we begin with two questions of our own. In what location is the author? When he writes the epistle, and to what location is the author writing? All right, it is clear that the author and his audience are not proximate. They are not proximate. How do we know that? We begin with chapter 13, verse 19, where he says, That I may be restored to you the sooner. The author and his readers do not share the same space or location. They are not proximate. They are spatially separated. Now, last week I alluded to the vectors of time and space in this epistle. They are crucial to understanding the drama. Not just the narrative drama, but some of the issues of the relationship between the writer and the community. Next, chapter 13, verse 22. I have written to you. The epistle testifies to distance between the author and his audience. One writes a letter to those not in the same space as oneself. You don't write a letter to your next door neighbor. You go knock on the door and talk to him. You write a letter to grandma who's living 3,000 miles across the country. All right, there's distance between the writer and his audience. He writes them a letter. Next, chapter 13, verse 23. I shall see you. Clearly, he does not presently see them because they are not in the same location. They are spatially separated. All right, so this lack of proximity between the author and his audience 
means that he is reaching out to them from some other place than where they are. Well, who else is in the author's space with the author himself? Chapter 13, verse 24, those from Italy. Those from Italy are with him in the space or location from which he is writing. Right now, this phrase from Italy appears exactly in chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 2, a passage which I already read when Priscilla and Aquila have come from Italy as a result of the Emperor Claudius's decree ejecting the Jews from Rome in 49 AD, a discussion we had earlier on. So in both places in the New Testament where this Greek phrase from Italy occurs, it refers to expatriates, persons who once lived in Italy, but who were driven from Italy by imperial edict in one case or by some other form of exile. Were these Italians then in chapter 13, 24, also banished from Rome in 49 A.D.? If chapter 10, verse 32 refers to the Claudian decree, remember the former times, did the author leave Italy with them in 49 A.D.? Probably not. Because if he had, he would have said, we endured sufferings in chapter 10, verse 32, instead of you endured sufferings in chapter 10, verse 32. He would have included himself in with them. All right, but whenever these Italians left their homeland, they became sojourners, sojourners in another location. And as sojourners, Christian sojourners, they are pilgrims. They are Hebrews of the end of the age. Like Abraham of old and Israel sojourning from Egypt to Canaan, they are looking for the lasting city, the better country, the eschatological land, the eschatological land outside the gate, chapter 13, verse 12, outside the camp, chapter 13, verse 13, outside of this world. Thus, we have determined that our author and those who are exiled from Italy and are in the same space as our author when he writes this letter, that these characters in our narrative are directing their greeting back to those in Italy. That is, those who have sojourned out from Italy join our author in sending epistolary greetings to Christians in Italy. Those from Italy greet you in Italy. You get the parallel there. It's implicit, but it is there. Spatial proximity. Author and his company that are with him reaching back out of spatial remoteness to Christians in Italy to whom they are directing this epistle. All right, is it possible to be more specific as to where in Italy these greetings in this letter are directed? All right, let's look at verse 23 of chapter 13. Does it provide a clue? Timothy has been released. All right, if Timothy here is Paul's co-laborer, and I've made a case for that last week, he was proximate to Paul 
during the apostles' imprisonment, as Philemon, verse 1, indicates. I don't mean to imply that he was necessarily in prison with Paul and Onesimus, but he was in the same spatial context with them. He had access to them in jail, in the jail in which they were held. That he was later imprisoned himself is clear from this passage, but unmentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, so that the importance of the first century Christian church in Rome is underscored by Paul's letter to the Romans, as well as by the apostles' first imprisonment in Rome, as noted at the close of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 14 and 16, and and the so-called prison epistles of Paul, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The importance of the Christian church in Rome causes me to lean in that direction for the destination of the epistle to the Hebrews. The mention of Timothy here in 1323 would also resonate with a Roman audience lending further plausibility to a Roman destination. They would know that name because he was with Paul when Paul was in prison here. But I toss in an additional observation in favor of this Roman destination of the epistle. We have already specified Clement of Rome's first epistle, an epistle in which he quotes the epistle to the Hebrews 17 times in his letter to the church at Corinth. Is this because, as the Christian pastor of the Christian church at Rome at the end of the first century, the epistle to the Hebrews is familiar to him? Not only familiar to him, but precious and a favorite of his. Because it was addressed to the Christians in Clement City some years beforehand. Familiarity with Hebrews and quoting it seven times suggests breeds complementary citation and allusion. Is it conceivable that Clement cites it because it is the favorite epistle of the church in Rome because it was sent to the church in Rome? even after Paul's letter to the Romans. Hmm. So I have indicated, not dogmatically, but once again suggestively, that the letter to the Hebrews is headed to Italian Christians in Rome. But I have not indicated, however tentatively, in what location the author and those from Italy reside at the time the letter is written. So once again, we go back to the naming of Timothy in 1323 to grab the clue which suggests the location of the writer and those from Italy who are with him there. According to 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul left Timothy at Ephesus to minister to the church at Ephesus. Note also 2 Timothy 1.18. Ephesus in Asia or Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, was a larger region mentioned in the epistles to Timothy, namely 2 Timothy 1.15, 2 Timothy 3.11, 2 Timothy 4.13. Ephesus has a central place in Timothy's career. So, Timothy's context at the latter end of Paul's career is Asia Minor in general and Ephesus in particular. Is it possible that as Paul is destined for his second imprisonment in Italy, Timothy is imprisoned in Asia Minor. 
a mirror of Paul's first imprisonment at Rome with this variation. Timothy is also incarcerated this time, but not at Rome. Hmm. Hmm. Or more specifically, that Timothy is imprisoned and released from prison in Ephesus. Now, these are tantalizing suggestions because they would place our author in proximity to the recently imprisoned and released Timothy, contiguous space, Hebrews 13.23, and hence tip the balance toward Asia Minor and Ephesus for the letter-writing base of our author. In summary, then, I have suggested that the letter to the Hebrews is written to Italian Christians in Rome by an anonymous author writing from Ephesus in Asia Minor. Author and recipients are pilgrims and sojourners with the Israel of God of the end of the age, and they are a community of Italian expatriates who have joined together to write and send this epistle to their brothers and sisters in a beleaguered church in the center of the Roman Empire. Mm. All right, I said I won't take any questions, and I won't until 9 o'clock, because I want to go on to genre. Following in your handout outline, what is genre? Can anyone very quickly define the term? A style of literature, a kind of writing. Okay, We might say fiction or non-fiction, novel or biography, even autobiography, narrative prose versus poetry. Okay, We can talk about parables. Okay, We can talk about prophecy. These are all genres of literature. All right, what genre do you think Hebrews is? Anyone? It's many genres. <laughs> it's a letter. Okay? That's the normal answer. Now, the focus in this debate, and it is a rather intense debate, I add, is in chapter 13, verse 22. Notice what our author says. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Our author seems to give us two options himself, a word of exhortation and a written brief. What does he mean by word of exhortation? The phrase in the Greek text also appears one other place in the New Testament. It appears in Acts 13, verse 15. Now, in Acts 13, 15, it refers to what Paul is doing in a synagogue on his first missionary journey in Antioch of Pisidia. And what is he doing in that synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, Pete? Preaching. He is preaching. So this phrase, a word of exhortation, which is what Paul is invited to do by the synagogue leaders... He is given the scriptures, invited to stand up and give a word of exhortation, and he launches into one of the longest sermons in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13. So, our author of Hebrews has written a word of exhortation or a sermon, a homily, because that's what it is in Acts 13, 15. 
And many scholars believe Hebrews is a sermon delivered in writing to our author's audience in Italy. In fact, the majority opinion among modern commentators is that Hebrews is a sermon, which means it is not an epistle, it is not a letter, and that is the majority view as of the end of the 20 and 20, beginning of the 21st century. But let's examine the phrase, I have written to you, which concludes verse 22 of chapter 13. I want to translate the Greek text very literally. Very literally, the Greek text would read, I have epistled you. I have epistled you. Or as the King James rightly translates, I have written a letter unto you. Yes, the King James got it right. It's better than any modern translation of the Greek there. Our author indicates that he has indeed written a letter, as his literal words read, an epistle to his audience in Italy. That's what he says. Well, why don't modern scholars accept the author's own words about the genre of what he's written? Says he wrote an epistle, so it's an epistle. Why do they keep calling it a, a sermon? Because Hebrews does not begin like an epistle. It doesn't begin like a letter. The opening to Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, does not begin like the opening of other letters or epistles of the New Testament. And we looked through that a little bit briefly last week. We looked at the opening of some of Paul's epistles. We've already noted that the author does not identify himself as Paul does, as James does at the opening of his epistle, as Peter does at the opening of his epistle, as John does at the opening of his epistle, or as Jude does. The author of Hebrews does not begin with a salutation. He does not begin with a greeting to his audience, as the other New Testament epistles do. Hebrews thus has no epistolary beginning. It has no prescript. It has no epistolary prescription. No introductory material, which is common to the other New Testament epistles. And I should note, it is also common in Greco-Roman epistolary style of the day. This prescript, standard, SOP stuff when you're writing a letter. But Hebrews does have a postscript. It does have an epistolary postscript, a so-called epistolary conclusion, which is also found in the other New Testament epistles, as well as found in contemporary Greco-Roman letters. Our authors note that I have written you is similar to expressions at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 22, Colossians, chapter 4, verse 18, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 17, Philemon, verse 21, 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 12, 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13, 2 John, verse 12, 3 John, verse 13, I have written to you. It's kind of a standard postscript in these epistles. Notice the request to pray for us. 
in Hebrews 13, verse 18. It appears in 1 Thessalonians 5:25 and in 2 Thessalonians 3:1. And what about the doxology in Hebrews 13:21? Glory forever and ever. Amen. It is similar to the doxology that concludes Romans 16:27, Philippians 4:20, Jude 25, and 2 Peter 3:18. Final greetings, Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all of your leaders and the saints. Final greetings are common to most of all the Old Testament epistles, except Galatians, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, 1 John, and Jude. And finally, the phrase grace to you, Hebrews 13, 25, is common at the end of all Paul's letters. Every one of them has it, though Hebrews is the only Catholic epistle to include it. Well, what do we make of all this? Hebrews ends like a letter, but it does not begin like a typical letter. And yet, our author tells us he has written a letter. What do we make of this? Learned modern scholars do not agree with what our author himself says he has written. Now, I do not mean to minimize the bias modern scholars have against the very testimony of the biblical writers. They impose their own liberal agendas on the text in spite of the literal words in the text. But in this case, I think they are overlooking something unique. Many of them, if not most of them, admit with great admiration, liberals alike, that Hebrews is a unique piece of literature. They are absolutely astounded by it, as we all should be. Well then, may I gently extend a note of appreciation to the unique letter format of our author's epistle. He is not Paul, so he does not write a letter like Paul writes. He writes his letter in his own unique style, in his own unique format, with his own unique adaptation of the genre. Leaving out the contemporary opening salutation, but ending with the usual doxology and benediction. The absence of a greeting at the opening of the letter is due to the subject matter of that so-called opening. It's called the exordium, the first four four verses of that first chapter. His opening goal is to incorporate his audience, who, by the way, know him very well and need no introduction to him, to incorporate them into the narrative climax of the history of redemption, God's revelatory speech in his son, Jesus Christ. That is what he wants to begin with emphatically, and he doesn't want to clutter up his theology of the Son's incarnation and revelation with his own name or his own salutation. He wants to cut to the quick and get right to the heart of the thesis of what he is about. Our author preserves his anonymity even at the outset of his epistle so that Christ will have the preeminence. That preeminence is unfolded in his letter in a way unlike any other New Testament book. And our author remains out 
of the limelight so as to shine the light of glory upon the Son of God and his unique narrative sojourn. Unique New Testament book, unique New Testament letter, unique New Testament biblical theology, unique New Testament epistolary style, unique New Testament author. He's unique, singular. No one else in the New Testament like him. This different kind of letter is the inspired work of a different kind of author. So my invitation to the New Testament scholarly community is recognize the unique personality and character of this author. Allow him to be himself. You like that phrase everywhere else when you're talking about narcissism. Well, allow this guy to be himself, his own unique self. Grant him his liberty to be different even as he writes his letter, which is exactly what he tells you he's doing in verse 22 of chapter 13. So get off the dime of thinking that he's got to follow your presupposed standards of what makes a letter. And let him write a letter in his own profound style. Yes, it is a word of exhortation, but it is an epistolary word of exhortation. And now I'll take questions. Benji? How is it that a city like Rome, which, if you're correct, is the recipient of two of the greatest theological pieces of literature ever written, Paul's Epistle to Rome, could be so theologically backwards as to deny the central tenets of both of those epistles, justification by faith alone, and the definitive once-for-all character of Christ's death and resurrection. Because they're converts from paganism, and they haven't learned the rudiments. I think the... Um, I think the social attraction, you see, of uh, Roman city culture is extremely deleterious, uh, as is any cultural accommodation of Christianity in any era. You start playing the culture's game, and the culture conquers you. You see this in what's happening in the emergent church movement. Culture is destroying the orthodoxy of that movement. So they're becoming worse than postmodernist. They're becoming outright universalist and heretical. Not all of them, but many of them. The contemporizing movement, in order to identify, accommodate yourself to the culture, will swallow you up. It'll swallow you up because Christ didn't come to make you multiculturalists. He came to take you out of this culture, to make you salt and light and witness to it. 
and to bring you to a culture which transcends America and Asia and Africa and Arabia and every culture on the face of this globe. He came to bring you to a culture that transcends that. He came to bring you to the heavenly community of the saints. That's the culture you belong to. Benji, you also had uh, a rejoinder there? Well, just, uh, you know, looking at the history of the Roman church, they have completely neglected the message of this book in terms of their desire for concreteness, the visible. There's no, in other words, there's no, uh, in addition to Romans, there's no book they need more than this one that was originally written to them. Amen, and that's exactly why the Reformers wrote commentary after commentary on the Epistle of the Hebrews in order to try to show the Roman Catholic Church that they were going back to the beggarly elements. Lots of commentaries on Hebrews coming out of the 16th century, not to mention Calvin and others. Yes, I forgot your name, so... Maureen. Maureen. How did, maybe you touched on this last week, but how did it arrive at its name. How did Hebrews get the name? And it's not written in Hebrews. Yes, if you look at the handout, first handout, you'll see my transliteration of the title, which I also have uh, pictured for you uh, from the original P46 papyrus. Okay, that title is on the top of the first page or the first chapter of the epistle. It's pros Hebraios, which in Greek means to the Hebrews. That's the first appearance of it, somewhere around 150 A.D. or 200 A.D. Uh, Whether that is uh, the author's title is a question, or and I said last week, it's possible that the copyist who who, uh, wrote P46, who, who actually copied it out in the papyrus, was following a copy of the author's original. It's not an original itself. It doesn't come from the author's own hand. But nonetheless, is it a copy of what the author himself said? Now, that's an argument from silence. I can't prove it one way or the other. But I think that the title is accurate because of the theological content. Hebrews here is not Jews. Hebrews here is sojourners. It is used of Abraham himself in Genesis 14. He's called a Hebrew because he is a sojourner. Okay? You're welcome. Yes, Scott? I just wondering if I misunderstood your comments about... Timothy's imprisonment, because I know you were saying that the epistle was written before 64 A.D., but then I thought you were suggesting Timothy's imprisonment with Paul's second imprisonment after 64 was suggested here. Did I misinterpret that? Yes, I've got an anachronism there, don't I? (laughs) Thank you for spotting that. I'll have to to think about that again. (laughs) I said it was tentative. Well, uh, thank you uh, again, and uh, next week I do promise you we will look at the text. We'll finally get to look at the words on the page. <laughs>